Section twenty nine of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Frances Sheridan. Volume two continued. Patty in continuation. Amen, amen. Sure, my dear unhappy lady is enough to break one's heart to see her. I was not able to go on, good madam, and begged of my brother to set down what happened, and he has put it in better words than I could. My lady shut herself up for the remainder of the night, and would not suffer any one to come near her. It is easy to guess how she spent her time. Rest, to be sure, she took none. She could not if she had been inclined, for there was no bed in the chamber where she locked herself up. In the morning a lady who was our neighbour, a worthy, good woman, came in her own coach and took away my lady and the two children. She neither consented nor refused, but seemed to let us do what we would with her, for she said nothing, but suffered the lady and me to lead her downstairs and put her into the coach. But the sight of the two children threw her into such an agony that I thought I should have died on the spot only with seeing her. I have writ again to Lady Biddulph. If she is able, to be sure she will come down, but I'd rather she would send for my lady, for this is a sorrowful place for her to stay in. May the 20th. My lady has received a letter from her mother desiring her to come to town directly with the children. She says she is not able to come down for her, as her health is but bad, and my Lady V has been so good as to send down her own coach to carry the little family to town. My brother has taken the care of my master's funeral upon himself. He is to be carried to the family burying place at Arnold Abbey. As soon as that is over, we must try to get my lady to town. She has no business to go into her own lonely house again. It would be enough to kill her. May the 30th. Thank God we have got safe back to London. My lady keeps up wonderfully under the load of grief that she has in her heart. She does not complain nor lament herself, as I have seen some do, who have not been in half her trouble. She hardly spoke a word during her whole journey, and strove as much as possible not to cry, but I could observe that she never turned her eyes on the two little babes, one of whom sat on my lap and the other beside me, but the tears ran down her cheeks. It was a doleful sight, the meeting between her and my Lady Biddulph. The poor old lady grieves sadly and looks mighty ill. I am afraid she will not hold out long. She has had great trials for a lady so far in years. Sir George came to see my lady. He looked troubled. I hope he will be good to her. June the 1st. My lady asked me this morning if I had thought of keeping any journal for this fortnight past. I told her I had, and she desired to see it. She shed so many tears while she read it, that the paper was quite wet when she gave it to me again. She ordered me to make up the packet and send it off, 
as she was not in a condition to add anything to it herself. Mrs. Arnold in continuation. June the 30th. Yes, my dear Cecilia, I have need of the tender condolments with which your last kind packet was filled. Well may you call me a child of affliction. I am now so exercised in sorrows that I look forward to nothing else. Patty, I find, has been a faithful journalist, and has carried down her melancholy narrative to this day, this day on which for the first time I have taken a pen in my hand for more than two months. But my eyes are much better, and I hope I shall not have occasion for the assistance of her pen, unless some new calamity should again disqualify me from using my own. Yet in the midst of my griefs ought I not to return thanks to heaven that I have such an asylum to fly to as the arms of one of the best of mothers. Oh, my dear, while I have her I ought not to say that I have lost everything. Sir George has been more obliging since my fatal loss than he was before, but still there wants that cordial heart which he formerly had. As for his lady, I know very little of her. She came to see me twice, since my arrival in town, in all the formal parade of a state visit. How ill does the vanity of pomp suit with a house of mourning! Her visits were short, formal, and cold. She seems to be intolerably proud and I thought looked as if she was disgusted at visiting people in lodgings who were so nearly related to her. My brother and she are to go down this summer into Scotland to see a nobleman who is her uncle by her mother's side. She is ridiculously vain of her family, and has taught Sir George to be so too, so that now he can hardly vouchsafe to own a relation that is untitled. June the 21st. Lady V, whose friendship has been one of the chief resources of comfort to me, went out of town this morning. She is retired, for life I fear, to a distant part of Lancashire, in order to spend the rest of her days with her eldest sister, a widow lady, of whom she is very fond. Her son's ill behaviour has disgusted her so, she has broke with him entirely. Her younger son is gone into the army, not, I find, with her approbation, and she told me she has nothing now worth living for, at least nothing for which she could subject herself to the cares of life. She insisted on my corresponding with her, and renewed her assurances of that kind attachment which I have already so strongly experienced. At another time the loss of this dear woman's society would have affected me more sensibly, but I am so inured to disappointment and grief that I am almost become a stoic. Patty has already informed you that Miss Birchall is often with us. She is more solicitous, more assiduous than ever in her attendance on my mother. I find she even sat up with her two nights on an illness which seized her on her first hearing the news of my misfortune. Poor girl! My mother tells me she went so far as to express her apprehensions on my being again single, but my mother quieted her fears on that head 
not without a soft reprimand for her doubting, by putting her in mind that besides the circumstances not being altered in regard to her, she had received my solemn promise that whenever it was in my power I would use my whole influence, whatever that might be, in her favour. I did make her such a promise, and shall fulfil it to the utmost. Mr. Falkland's absence from the kingdom hitherto put it out of my power, nor would I, without my beloved Mr. Arnold's participation, have ever attempted it. Had he lived, fully restored as I was to his confidence and good opinion, I should have ventured to disclose the secret to him, and got him to join with me in such measures as I should have thought best for Miss Birchall's happiness. It now rests upon myself alone and I will leave nothing unattempted to serve her. June the 22nd You will be surprised, perhaps, my Cecilia, when I tell you that Mr. Falkland is now in England. Miss Birchall told me so this day. She mentioned it in a careless manner, rather directing her discourse to my mother. She had too much delicacy to hint at consequences of any kind from this circumstance, and quickly turned from the subject. My mother asked her impatiently when he came, where he was, and several other questions, to none of which she could give any answer, but that she heard he had been returned above three months, and was at his seat in Hertfordshire. I am surprised Sir George never mentioned this to me. To be sure he knew it. He is not extremely nice in his notions, however. This is a decorum for which I am obliged to him. Lady V. doubtless was ignorant of it, or she would have told me. There is nothing now to prevent me from warmly interfering for Miss Birchall. Charming young woman, how is she to be pitied? The tedious years of suspense, of almost hopeless love that she has passed, deserve a recompense, and her little boy, my mother tells me, is a lovely creature. Miss Birchall brought him once to see my mother. Mr. Falkland's former housekeeper visits the child often, and has brought his mother frequent and large supplies for his use. I told Miss Birchall at parting to-day that I had not forgot my promise, and that as soon as decency would permit, nothing should hinder me from being a most strenuous advocate for her. She squeezed my hand and whispered, Dear madam, my fate is in your power. I would it were, then should she soon be happy, but I will acquit myself as far as I am able. June the 23rd. I was prevailed on to dine at my brother's to-day, the first time that I have been abroad ever since I came to town. I had no mind to go, but my mother, not being well, had excused herself, and she said it would be taken amiss if I did so too, Lady Sarah herself having made the invitation. Her ladyship said, I need not be fearful of meeting strangers at her house, as it was to be a private day. So much the better, thought I, nothing else should induce me to go. It was the first time I was in Sir George's house, which is a very magnificent one, within a door or two of Mr. Falkland's in St. James's Square, as Lady Sarah did not approve of that which he had before. But, my dear, the ostentation of this woman made me sick. Such a parade of grandeur, 
such an unnecessary display of state and splendour, I thought looked like an insult upon me. I was carried into a most sumptuous drawing-room, but as this was a private day, as she called it, the furniture was all covered up with body-cloths, and the room, having been newly washed, felt extremely cold. I was told her ladyship was dressing, that was then, as I imagined, her dinner-time. After I had shivered here for about half an hour, Lady Sarah's woman came to desire me to walk upstairs. As the woman did not know me, and from the little ceremony she saw me treated with concluded I was some humble visitor, she took me up the back stairs to her lady's dressing-room, where I found Lady Sarah, who was not yet half-dressed, in consultation with her milliner. The woman was trying some head-dresses on her before the glass. She made me a very light apology for having kept me waiting so long, and to mend the matter told me, as she was not near ready, if I chose looking at the house I should have time enough to do it before dinner. I thanked her, but said, I had already sat so long in the cold that I felt myself chilled, and with her ladyship's permission would place myself at her fireside till dinner was ready. She asked her woman carelessly why I had not been shown into the dining-parlour. She then turned to her milliner again, to whom she gave a particular charge to have a suit of very rich point, which she had fixed on done for her against the next night, by which I found my sister was going to throw off her mourning entirely, that which she had on being so slight that it was scarcely to be distinguished for such. My brother entered the room while she was thus employed, and having saluted me, looked at his watch, and asked Lady Sarah had she ordered dinner later than usual. She told him she had ordered it half an hour later than ordinary, as she had a mind to make a long morning, having dedicated it to tradespeople, with whom she had a hundred things to do. My brother cast a side-glance at me. I thought he looked a little abashed at the impertinence and ill-breeding of his wife. Lady Sarah had by this time huddled on her clothes. A laced footman appeared at the door, who summoned us by a silent bow to dinner. The milliner gathered up her frippery, and put them into a bandbox, telling her she should wait on her ladyship again. Lady Sarah answered, "'You have a monstrous way to go, Mrs. Blank.' I forget the name, and, as I have not half done with you yet, you may stay and dine here as we are alone, and I will look over the rest of the things in the evening, as I shall not have another leisure day while I am in town." This was going a little too far, Sir George felt it. I believe, Lady Sarah, said he, this gentlewoman has a coach waiting for at the door. He had seen it, for he was but just come in. Perhaps it may be inconvenient to detain her. She may leave the things and call another time." The woman took the hint, though she before seemed inclined to accept the honour Lady Sarah had done her. She made her curtsey and withdrew. As this, however, had brought on a variety of fresh instructions, it detained us so long that the dinner was quite cold nor was our repast, had it even been warm, by any means answerable to the elegance of the service, the superb sideboard, and the number of attendants. In short, the dinner was composed of a parcel of tossed-up dishes that looked like the fragments of a feast. 
"'You know there is nobody more indifferent to the pleasures of the table than I am, "'yet I own that this, joined to the rest of this foolish woman's behaviour, nettled me extremely. "'There was such a mixture of sordidness and vanity in the whole apparatus "'as made it truly contemptible. "'I made haste to put an end to my visit as soon as I possibly could after dinner, "'with a resolution never to repeat it.' From these few sketches of Lady Sarah you may form some kind of an idea of what sort of a creature it is. I should pity Sir George, but that I think her disposition is not extremely opposite to his own. June the 24th I am told that the widow Arnold is actually married to that vile attorney who was the contriver and more than partner in her iniquity. I am really glad she has lost the name of a family to which she was such a disgrace. Everybody now believes that I and my children have been greatly injured, but how unavailing is compassion! It only mortifies when it is expressed by the pitying words and looks of people who have it neither in their power nor inclination to assist you. This Mrs. Arnold, bad as she is, is visited and caressed favour always follows the fortunate june the twenty fifth this day sir george and his lady set out for scotland he came to take his leave of us but made an apology for lady sarah whose hurry could not permit her to call on us my brother says they shall stay some months at her uncle's lord k he told me at parting he should write to me as soon as he got to his journey's end having something very particular to say to me. July the 7th. I have read over my journal of the last fortnight, and am startled to think what a poor, insignificant being I am. Not a single act worth recording, even to you. My whole life, perhaps, may have passed so, yet one is apt to fancy that they are doing something of importance while they are engaged in the little bustle of the world, be it ever so trifling a manner. And when you find you have a variety of incidents to relate in which you yourself were concerned, and your time has not been spent in vain, but for these last fourteen days had I kept a journal for my cat, I think I should have had as much to say for her. July the 8th. I shall grow busy again. I have received the promised letter from Sir George. An extraordinary one it is, but I will not anticipate the contents. Read them yourself. Dear Sydney, July the 4th, 1706. I have a serious subject to offer to your consideration which made me the rather choose to engage your attention in this manner than in a conversation between ourselves, liable as that would be to interruptions, objections, and frivolous punctilios from which you have already suffered so severely. I have paid so much regard to that decorum of which you are so fond, as never to have mentioned Mr. Falkland's name to you since you were become a widow, though it is near four months since he returned to England. As I kept a correspondence with him when he was abroad, you may be sure I informed him of your reconciliation to your late husband, a reconciliation which, if you thought it a happiness to you, you were indebted to Falkland for. 
this single circumstance it was that inclined him to return to england which otherwise perhaps he would never again have seen though the necessity of his affairs here which he had left at random required his presence to avoid giving umbrage to your husband he repaired privately to his house in the country where i paid him a visit few of his friends except myself knew of his being in the kingdom remember sydney the great obligations you have to mr falkland and let that prepare your mind for what i am going to say you are now become a free woman falkland loves you still with an unparalleled affection i had a letter from him soon after your arrival in town wherein he mentions the revival of his hopes from your present situation and entreats me to be mindful of his interest he charged me however not to mention his name to you till a decent time was past otherwise probably you would have been acquainted with these particulars sooner but falkland himself has a little too much of that ridiculous nicety which you admire so i think i have waited till a very decent time as you have now been almost three months a widow i have very little reason to imagine that my influence on this occasion will have any weight either with you or my mother i have had proofs of this already but i hope you will not be so blind to your own interest as to refuse the good that fortune once more throws at your feet i can hardly suppose you so weak as to let the absurd objection which formerly prevented your happiness still prevail with you to reject the same happiness so unexpectedly again offered to your acceptance my mother and you have by this time learnt how to forgive human frailties indeed you forgave such enormities that falkland's transgression in comparison to them was innocence but i will not reproach the memory of the dead whatever pretence you might formerly have had to carry your punctilios to an extraordinary height certain circumstances in your life have now made your situation very different you are destitute of fortune encumbered with children reflect on this and let your own imagination supply the rest to anybody but yourself i should think all that i have said needless but i know the minds that i have to deal with i must take this opportunity of telling you that i am surprised at my mother's continued attachment to miss birchill she is an artful creature and i think by no means a proper acquaintance for you i am far from wishing to injure her but such an intimacy may be dangerous you will certainly hear from falkland before it be long i repeat it again you owe him more than ever you will be able to repay the recompense he desires will ensure your own happiness and prosperity your gratitude as well as your prudence will now be put to the test and your conduct on this occasion will determine me as to the light in which i shall henceforth consider you present my duty to my mother lady sarah desires her service may be accepted i am etc what a letter is this my sister but sir george is still himself 
gross, void of sentiment, he dreams of nothing but the glaring advantages that fortune and rank in life procure. And how he argues, too! Weak arguer! He will not suppose that the object, absurd he calls it, which formerly prevented my happiness, should still prevail with me to reject the same happiness. Why not? Is the nature of Mr. Falkland's offence changed? Has he ever repaired it? Has not Miss Birchall the same claim she ever had? Nay, as stronger than ever, if years of unabated love can give it to her. My mother and I have by this time learnt to forgive human frailties. Nay, we forgave enormities. Unkind brother, to rake up the unfortunate ashes of my beloved. We have indeed learnt to forgive human frailties, but they were the frailties of a husband, a repenting husband, who was seduced to the commission of those crimes which he abhorred. But surely that is no plea for my overlooking the faults of another, to whom I am under no such tie. I am now without fortune and encumbered with children, indelicate man. Does he think that an argument in favour of his proposal? It is a strong one against it. Shall I, who when I was in the virgin bloom of youth, flattered with some advantages of person, which time and grief have since impaired, and not destitute of fortune, I, who then rejected Mr. Falkland from motives which still subsist, shall I now, that I have lost those advantages, meanly condescend to accept of this rejected man? This would indeed be acknowledging that the humiliating change had levelled me to those principles which I formerly condemned, would lay me under mortifying obligations to Mr. Falkland, and destroy the merit of that refusal which proceeded from such justifiable motives. No, my sordid brother, if I could recompense Mr. Falkland as he deserves at my hand, I would do it. But with such a mind as I bear, it cannot be done your way. I say nothing of the promise I made Miss Birchall. If I had never made her such, my sentiments would be the same from those other considerations. But such a promise, binding as it is, determines my conduct beyond the possibility of a doubt. How unreasonable are Sir George's prejudices with regard to this unhappy young creature! He is forever throwing out some invective against her. It is cruel, but I am tempted to forgive him as I know it proceeds from his attachment to his friend. He need not put me in mind of the gratitude I owe Mr. Falkland. I am thoroughly sensible of it. But Sir George and I differ widely in our ideas of expressing this gratitude. My conduct in this affair is to determine him as to the light in which he is hereafter to consider me. Why, be it so, he has long lost the tenderness of a brother for me. I will not regain it at the expense of my honour. I know the worst that can befall me is poverty. I have already experienced almost every possible ill in life but that, and for that I am prepared. But I will not call myself poor while I have an upright heart to support me, and the means, poor and despicable as they are, of sustaining life. 
but what do i call despicable have i not an estate my dear a whole fifty pounds a year that i can call my own this much was reserved to me out of my jointure when the rest was sold and on this whenever it pleases heaven to take my mother away will i retire to some cottage in a cheap country where my two children and i will live and smile at the rich and the great my brother's letter has vexed and disgusted me exceedingly lady sarah presents her service vain woman is that a becoming phrase to the mother of her husband i am so provoked i think i shall not answer her he has no relish for such arguments as i could produce in support of my own opinions and my writing to him would only bring on disagreeable altercations my mother is in a downright passion with him selfish wretch she called him and said he would sacrifice both honour and justice to his own pride End of section 29